Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And today, my guest is Ryan Anderson. Um, Ryan's the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's also the author or co-author of five books. Um, his most recent is Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Um, one of his other books is When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. And you wrote this, what, back in 2017? Yes, I wrote it in 2017. It came out in 2018 and then it was banned in 2021. <laughs> so actually, let's let's kind of start there. Um, there's a lot of strange new respect, I feel like, out there for the slippery slope, right? It really seems like we've, we've slippery, slippery sloped ourselves right off a cliff. Um, and But one place that there seems to be absolutely no respect for the slippery slope um, is actually in sort of the establishment of the Republican Party. They still seem to be you know, licking their wounds from losing the gay marriage debate. Um, and it seems to like seep into the way they think about a lot of culture war issues. Uh, but now we have this opportunity where the Republican Party is now going to be on record as to whether or not they're going to codify gay marriage. Um, and so you, you have a you have an op ed out with Representative Chip Roy, who's also been a guest on this program, um, basically saying Republicans don't know how to defend what they they even even after this loss they don't know how to defend marriage they don't know how to defend a lot of these social issues they're they're, they're inarticulate and cowardly on them um why do you think that is oh geez so <laughs> there's a lot there um i mean some of it is that some of the members don't actually believe it right so it's not just that they're inarticulate it's the reason they're inarticulate is that they're phonies uh, in their hearts of hearts they think their supporters are bigots um, which is why, you know, several of them, you know, it's their lame duck senators. I think it's like of, of the 12 that have uh, voted for um, closure on this. I think three of them are lame duck. At least two of them, um, Murkowski and uh, Collins, have just always been pro same sex marriage um, senators. Right. So so it's not that they're inarticulate. It's like they publicly don't believe it. I think some of the ones um who are leaving and just in general, some of the ones who voted for this um, might publicly say that they support marriage as a unit of husband and wife, but privately they don't really believe it. Uh, I think others are just given bad advice by their staff, by their political consultants, um, that this is a losing issue. Um, and to a certain extent, I mean, politically um, uh, not so much with GOP voters, but just, you know, as a, uh, as a legal matter, I don't see much appetite on the current Supreme Court or in any future Republican Party uh, for overturning Obergefell, right? So, so in that sense, like the consultant class is right, but that's not a reason to therefore say that we're going to ratify Obergefell in legislation and we're going to betray all of the people who have voted for us and put us into office uh, and just for that matter, like actually define marriage incorrectly uh, in statute. I mean, I think the broader problem, though, is that because social conservatives lost on the gay marriage um, debate, so many people just assumed that that meant we were going to lose on the transgender debate and that the LGBT acronym was somehow like a unified monolithic block. And it led a lot of people to prematurely surrender uh, without ever putting up a fight in a way that now, you know, five years later, um, people are now like reconsidering. They're like, wait, maybe we should have fought um, the transgender ideology, you don't actually need to be a conservative or a Christian. Um, you just need to kind of believe in like basic biology and common sense. And, you know, there, there, there've been all sorts of people and you guys have done a great job 
um, in highlighting like all sorts of voices who are not kind of like standard issue card carrying conservative Republicans who are concerned about what the transgender ideology is doing to women's rights, children, sports, bathrooms, medicine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this is an issue that Republicans could have led on. And instead, so many ran away from it. And what to me as, as, as a Christian is particularly embarrassing are the number of religious leaders uh, who caved prematurely, uh, who ran away from the issue, didn't want to speak out, um, which to my mind kind of like betrays um, their primary like calling vocation in life, which is to bear witness to the truth, right? And so, so I mean, that's not even a political consideration. That's just more of a, uh, if you claim to have certain beliefs about the nature of reality, the nature of creation, um, and, you know, a political loss leads you to more or less um, give up before even engaging in the new issue. What does that say? Um, yeah, I, it, it strikes me that the the gay marriage flip now where it is in a small minority at this point of people who um, will say they uh, they adhere or they don't believe in gay marriage. They don't believe it should be recognized by the state. Um it, it strikes me as it's, it's a very obvious example of law leading public opinion, right? Yep. Where um, before, I mean, so I, I remember one of my first votes in California, right? Um, and I'm I'm very mixed up on this issue. Maybe you can set me straight. I don't know, but I've 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 gone back and forth on this issue. Where I, one of my first votes I cast was in favor of gay marriage and um, and against Prop Eight in California. Mm-hmm. But in California, even that proposition passed. Um, and, and so like, it was enormous. So even in liberal California in 2008, which is not like the dark ages, um, (laughs) right. So, um, even in California and, and of course, Barack Obama famously evolved on this, but ran initially against gay marriage. Um, so, but then to, to fast forward, you know, just what, like, 12 years, uh, 14 years later, right? Depending on which episode you're talking about, but like, yeah, 14 years later, hardly, you know, decades and decades of, of yeah. quote unquote public opinion evolution, right? And it's completely the opposite way where it'd be difficult to find a red state probably that would pass a, a ban on gay marriage, right? Or non-recognition yeah. of gay marriage. And it's even less because it's only seven years after Obergefell, right? Obergefell was a 2015 case. We're sitting here, it's 2022. So it's been a little over uh, seven years. Obergefell was decided in June of um, 2015. And you can see how it shaped public opinion. This is why the um, Andrew Breitbart quote that always gets thrown around that politics is downstream from culture. It's a half truth. I mean, it's true um, that culture shapes politics, but it's also true that law and politics shape culture. Uh, And they shape beliefs. They shape religious institutions. Religious institutions aren't immune from uh, the broader culture, including the legal culture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, What what I'm amazed by in the current um, debate taking place in the Senate is no one thinks um, Obergefell is going to be overturned by the current court or that the Republican Party is going to be dedicated to um, nominating and confirming Supreme Court justices who will one day overturn Obergefell. And so the Senate vote actually um, uh, it's unnecessary if you're in favor of gay marriage, because gay marriage isn't going anywhere, but it will be used um, to fuel those people who want to harass Catholic schools that don't want to embrace gay marriage or Catholic adoption agencies or the evangelical baker, florist, photographer, et cetera, et cetera. Cause now they'll say, well, look, 
the executive branch of government, the judicial branch of government, and now the legislative branch of government all are on the record supporting same-sex marriage, you know, our state governments in favor of it. And then it looks much more like a Bob Jones University style situation where there's a compelling government interest and therefore you're going to get strict scrutiny and you're going to lose on your either free speech or religious liberty or freedom of association claim, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I can't understand is, you know, for the 12 uh, Republican senators um, who have gone along with this, and right now in the Senate, nothing can get done without 60 votes on an issue like this. They're being cheap dates, right? If they're going to vote for this bill, they have leverage and they can say to Schumer, the only way you get our vote to codify same-sex marriage in federal statute is if you provide meaningful protections for religious liberty, meaningful protections for the people who lost Obergefell, which is historically what checks and balances are about, right? If the courts give a win to one side of this issue, the way that a different branch of government, Congress is a check and a balance on the court, might say, well, look, the people who lost that case need some protections, not the people who won the case need additional protections. And there's a a largely, to my mind, a window dressing amendment um, that's kind of uh, providing cover uh, where the 12 can say, look, we did get some religious liberty protections, but the religious liberty protections are woefully insufficient in the bill. They really only apply to the bill itself, not to the broader concerns. Uh, and Mike Lee has proposed, to my mind, a much uh, more robust set of protections. And the fact that they won't even vote on the Lee Amendment probably tells you all you need to know. If you really wanted to find a so-called compromise where same-sex marriage would be enacted into law and there would be protections for the people who don't support same-sex marriage, you would take Lee's amendment and put it on with this bill. And then that's what the 12 should be saying. I I still wouldn't vote for the bill because I'm not in favor of voting to redefine marriage. But for those who are inclined to either just straight out, they embrace same-sex marriage or they want to find some compromise, they have leverage. And I, and I think they're not um, using it to um, actually protect meaningful religious liberty and actually find something that uh, would more embody what they're claiming is the common good. It, this this kind of points to a problem with, I think, capturing some of these issues as religious liberty versus this dominant paradigm. Um, and, and it goes, I think, the deeper sort of push-pull on the right and the frustrations of so many people on the right um, with the the failures of essentially the right to win any of these cultural battles for the last right. 30 or 50 years. Um because it seems to me that religious liberty is not enough, right? It, it's, it's a very untenable position to essentially acquiesce to the position, the dominant cultural position, okay, th- this is bigotry, yeah. right? This is bad. We are going to formally recognize it. There's a certain force um, that comes with writing this down in law or, or having a Supreme Court decision on it. Um, and then we'll say, oh, but, but for the bigots, we'll make an island, Right. You're you're always going to be defending your island. Right. The waters are always going to be creeping in. And we see this now with the current Supreme Court term where um, there's essentially a a variation on the on the Baker's case. Right. Um, Actually, really interesting variation because this it's about a wedding website designer. Right. And there what struck me is that actually the court, the appellate court adopted an to my mind, an absolutely insane opinion um, saying that this woman, this one woman who designs websites for people, um, that she she's a monopoly. Um, on you her can't get her anywhere else. You can't get her custom <laughs> website anywhere else. 
Yeah, it's just funny to me because, you know, we have all this discourse about Google not being a monopoly. But here we are. We have this one woman in North Carolina who designs wedding web or Colorado, sorry, um, who designs wedding websites. And the court is saying, well, maybe she is a monopoly over her particular product. Um, Which also would suggest that, therefore, it's, you know, it's all the more protected speech. Right. I mean, if, if you can't get anything else like this, that, that actually highlights the argument that ADF is making that, like, this is her speech it's not a cut and paste website that you can get anywhere i mean so so it's it's a very weird fact pattern uh, of the case that that the left has advanced not 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 our side um, yeah but but um to the the deeper question here um is religious liberty enough how oh, how no, can you defend <laughs> religious liberty in a society where you've lost the substance of of the battle yes. Yeah, no, I mean, so um, it's, it's a great question. And it's why, like, so the op-ed that Chip and I did um, uh, earlier this week at Fox News, you know, was focused primarily on the marriage part. You know, it, it highlighted that the religious liberty protections were uh, insufficient, but it also wanted to point out that we shouldn't just give up on the central institution of uh, civil society, of human existence, you know, millennia old all across the globe, all throughout human history, the idea that men and women are different and complementary, that their union um, is something that's unique, that children deserve both a mother and a father. Like, why are we being so quick um, to, to vote to overturn this, especially as conservatives who are supposed to uh, respect tradition, think that there's wisdom in tradition, are supposed to conserve um, the best of um, human practices, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it was almost two years ago now that I became president of uh, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And the day that I became president, I had a um, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal with the title, Religious Liberty Isn't Enough. Um, and it was, you know, more or less, you know, the, the op-ed version of summarizing a national affairs essay that I had written a couple of years earlier that had a very similar title. I, th I think it ended up being published under the title of Proxy Wars Over Religious Liberty. Uh, and what I pointed out in both pieces was that I had this weird phenomenon of um, all throughout the um, end of the Obama administration and the beginning of the Trump administration, being invited to speak places where the host said, we want you to talk about religious liberty issues. I was like, okay, fine. What do you want me to talk about? And they're like, oh, we want you to talk about like this boy that just won a female athletic competition. And we want to talk about like these men that are being transferred to women's jail. And we, I was like, wait, wait, wait that's, these aren't religious liberty issues. And people were using religious liberty as just, either the catchphrase for whatever the latest um, social conservative issue is, or, and this was also, this, this is actually more disconcerting. There were groups who only wanted to talk about those issues in so far as it infringed religious liberty. Um, and I mean, the, the very first book I ever wrote, uh, it was based upon a, a Harvard journal of law and public policy article that I had co-authored with Robbie George and Sharif Gurgis titled, what is marriage? And then the book came out as what is marriage, man and woman at a fence. And we said, look, we actually have to win the underlying substantive issue here, not just retreat to religious liberty. Uh, same thing's true in all of the gender identity questions, all of the transgender ideology questions. Um, there's been a certain um, push in the post-Obergefell social conservative world to say, look, we're going to lose on these substantive issues. So let's just protect little islands of freedom. Uh, and I think that's misguided in, in a variety of ways. One, I don't actually think it's ultimately sustainable. Um, if you allow 
the other side to frame your beliefs as the functional and legal equivalent of racist bigotry, you can expect to be treated in both law and culture the way that we rightfully treat racist bigots, right? And so, so it's a, to my mind, it's a, it's a self-defeating strategy to um, box yourself into the corner of, yeah, I'm a bigot, but even bigots have rights, right? And so I think that's a problem. But then two, like, I'm not convinced at all um, that we're going to lose all of these social and cultural issues. Uh, and I think that we would be on even better footing today had more people five years ago um, been willing to say that some of this transgender stuff is utterly um, uh, um, groundless, right? It's, it's, it's not grounded in reality. There's no evidence for it. It doesn't make any sense at all um, what we're doing, to, especially to children on these issues. But I think it's true for adults as well. Like, I, I don't think it's a good idea for Bruce to try to live as if he's Caitlin. But I think it's even more preposterous when we are blocking pubertal development for children when we're performing double mastectomies on teenage girls, when we're allowing boys into girls' bathrooms and locker rooms and to compete against women in athletic competitions, none of those are religious liberty issues, right? The, the, the bodily health, the bodily integrity of that young person, whether they're religious or not, it matters. Um, the athletic fairness, the athletic equality, the competition, whether that athlete is religious or non-religious, it matters. Uh, the privacy, the safety uh, for women who have um, been assaulted in restrooms and prisons, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think it's a mistake for us to, to, to frame those things as re religious liberty issues. It's also a mistake for us not to, um, as religious believers, to actually be advocating for justice and the common good when it comes to our political witness. Um, I, I've, I've had um, several women um, on the political left. Uh, in one case, you know, it was a lesbian who disagrees with me about more or less everything. And she's like, I'm so glad that you haven't done what some other Christians have done and embraced uh, a piece of policy called fairness for all, which would impose all of the transgender ideology on the general population under the guise of an anti-discrimination statute and then exempt certain faith-based institutions. And she's like, that bill does nothing for me. That's good, right? All it does for me is it imposes on me all of the bad transgender ideology. And because I'm not religious, I get none of the protections that you guys are then going to craft into the law to protect yourselves. Um, and, and I think that's hugely detrimental um, to the witness of religious people engaged in the public square and public policy debates. Um, if the law requires an exemptions for us, how could it be fair for us to impose that law on others? Right. Um, and so anyway, yeah, the, I, I entirely agree with you. Just um, the religious liberty only approach um, is, is terribly misguided and, and for a variety of reasons. Um, yeah. I mean, you keep bringing up the common good or the public square or some some notion of um, of the idea that we as a society have to come up with some kind of normative, assertive, um, you know, set of of truths or right and wrong that we're actually asserting and it seems like a lot of the time the right has relied on procedure look i'm i have a law degree i think due process is very important right um i think procedure is important but it's almost the procedural at the expense of the central actual normative debate i mean when it comes for example to men and women um which I think runs through a lot of these issues, right? Uh, the, the idea that men and women are somehow interchangeable, 
um, is not something that started with in the last few years with transgender ideology or gender ideology, right? Um, it's a much older idea. And oftentimes I get a lot of pushback because I, I declare myself to be an anti-feminist, right? Um, and I get a lot of pushback from people like, oh, uh, why? I mean, I just want society to, you know, I just want boys and girls to get the message that they can do whatever they want. And it's fine for women to stay home and it's fine for women to go out and work. And I just want this sort of individualistic, neutral message. Do you think that's possible for a society or are we inevitably saying and enshrining some kind of actual content about what it means to be a good woman or a good man or, or a, a, to have a good marriage or what, you know, all of these questions seem to me like society does have to say something, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's, there is some kind of neutrality where we can have a a, um, sort of society that has nothing to say about what a good woman is or a good man is, but nevertheless, you know, um, allows for, for sort of sex differences uh, in statistical, in a statistical way or whatever. Yep. Um, so, so there's a lot there. I mean, um, the big picture part of your question is um, every piece of public policy embodies some vision of morality and some vision of human flourishing, even protections for freedom, even protections for limited spaces of so-called neutrality are still based on some vision of morality and the human good. So the, the reason that you might want to protect um, freedom of speech uh, which could be a freedom protection. And you could say, we want to have v- viewpoint neutrality when it comes to the messages is because you think that would advance certain goods when it comes to communication, certain goods when it comes to uh, political debate or intellectual debate, or because you think there's a certain moral norm that protects um, uh, uh, what sort of government restrictions we should and shouldn't have on speech, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there's no kind of like um, uh, uh, moral neutrality when it comes to law, every piece of law, even uh, protections that embody some type of neutrality principles are still based on a moral vision. Uh, and this is true for um, religious freedom, right? Why do we think we shouldn't be coercing religious acts? It's because of some vision of what we think authentic religion looks like, right? And so even our, um, I think our, our most um, coherent defenses of the free exercise of religion are based on an understanding of man's religious nature and why religious action needs to be voluntary in order to be authentic, right? And this is the argument that Madison gives in the Memorial and Remonstrance, where he says, because we have duties to the creator, a vertical relationship, we have certain rights amongst men, a horizontal relationship. But I think all of these things have limits, right? And so um, while you say, you might want to say, all right, the state should be neutral amongst monotheistic religious traditions, Maybe it shouldn't be neutral with respect to polytheistic religious traditions because you could know that monotheism is true and polytheism isn't as a matter of uh, reason alone. You don't need revelation for that. Or maybe you just want to say, no, it should be neutral amongst Christian sects. Right? I mean, you're going to have to draw lines. You could also say, look, it should be neutral amongst all religious communities, but it shouldn't be neutral vis-a-vis religion or irreligion. Right? I, mean, I just gave you three different places of where you could draw um, limits on the free exercise of religion, why the church of the flying spaghetti monster or the church of Satan shouldn't get the same protections that the, um, the, the Baptists and the, uh, Anabaptists get, right. But you're somewhere, you're going to have to draw that line, right. That doesn't just drop from the sky and that's going to be based on some vision of morality and human flourishing. All right. When it comes to men and women, um, 
uh, chapter seven of the When Harry Became Sally book um, traces how almost all of the modern uh, gender ideology stuff actually has its roots in second wave feminism, which itself has its roots in certain aspects of first wave feminism. Um, that you, you, and it was interesting. It was um, Paul McHugh told me he thought that was the chapter that was most insightful for him. This is Paul McHugh's the medical doctor at Johns Hopkins who shut down the sex reassignment clinic back in the seventies. Right. So, you know, he, he knows all of the medical literature. He knows the science, the biology, the psychiatry. Um, and, and for him, it was more of the kind of um, the cultural narrative and the history of how we got from uh, a certain first wave to second wave to transgender ideology um, that was, you know, what he was uh, um, finding most um, new or unique or interesting from his perspective. Uh, for people who don't want to have to buy the book, especially since it's not uh, for sale on Amazon any, any longer, I published a version of that chapter. It was beefed up a little bit. So it's, I, I just pulled it up online. It's 52 pages long uh, in the Texas Review of Law and Politics. Uh, so this is um, at UT Austin's law school. And it's titled Neither Androgyny Nor Stereotypes, uh, Sex Differences and the Difference They Make. And the title, I mean, gives you a sense of where I come down on this. And I don't know if we're coming down in the same spot or not. So, you know, push back. But I think androgyny is a problem. Uh, and much of, to my mind, contemporary feminism is like an androgynous form of feminism, where equality means um, sameness. And in order for women to be equal to men, women have to be the same as men. And so I think that's one way in which we could go wrong is um, uh, uh, denying that there are differences that make a difference. I think the other way we could go wrong is distorting those differences, right? So some of the stereotypes, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, um, you know, men should be lawyers, women should be paralegals, men should be doctors, women should be nurses, like whatever. You could see how we could have a certain um, stereotype that might be true on average and for the most part, on average and for the most part, men enjoy hunting more so than women. I've never hunted in my life and my wife will be hunting, you know, a few hours after we finish uh, recording this podcast. And like, you know, my wife field dresses the deer and like, she's the hunter in the family and all of her sisters are hunters. None of my brothers are hunters. Right. And so like, therefore we defy stereotypes and that's perfectly fine. Right. And that's why I think both denying that there are differences or distorting those differences um, are, are mistaken. So neither androgyny nor stereotypes, but the subtitle there are sex differences that make a difference, right? There are sex differences and those differences make a difference um, primarily for marriage. I mean, I think the focal reason, the, the primary case of why we are embodied as male and female is to unite as one flesh in marriage and then to provide children with mothers and fathers. And if that's the primary reason, then there are going to be a variety of social practices that you're going to want to um, uh, foster in which you can help navigate the pathway of boy to man, to husband, to father, and girl to woman, to wife, to mother. And they're probably not going to look identical and that's okay. Right. And so this is where, you know, we don't want to do the androgyny thing. We don't want to do the stereotype thing. Um, but we do need distinctive pathways. This is why I think it's good that we have boy scouts and girl scouts and we don't just have unigender scouts. I think it's a mistake for the various people who are saying, let's make everything co-ed uh, we need some times and spaces that are co-ed but we also need times and spaces that are single sex um and then you know the, the challenge of this is 
you know, it's easy to talk about this in the abstract. You know, Aristotle says a virtue is the mean between two extremes. And so one vice would be androgyny. One vice would be stereotype. The virtue is the middle. What that looks like in practicality, you know, we could debate any given instance of that all day long. And it's, I think it's more going to be a matter of um, different communities, different religious traditions, political communities trying to titrate this accurately and trying to avoid either of those extremes and then, um, you know, figuring it out. But like, I, so anyway, yeah, I, I don't think it's possible to say we're going to just have like strict neutrality on this or to have like some form of like agnostic understanding. Yeah. I mean, so uh, it's, it's definitely, so I, I guess maybe I'm, maybe I'm more in favor of stereotypes than you are. It's possible. Um, no, I mean, I think one of the best ways I've ever been um, led to think about this is actually it was Louise Perry on on when I had her on this pod. But um, also, I think she had taken it from one of the researchers that she um, was reading in preparation for her book. Um, and, and that is that this is like clusters of traits, yep. right? It's not it, this really is not a binary. Biological sex is a binary. But what you have with with uh, sort of biological, the underlying uh, biological differences between men and women are much more like male and female faces, right? Where on any given trait, like there are women with large noses and there are men with small noses, but on average, men have bigger noses, but like there's a lot of variation, right? In that same thing with the jawline, same thing with, you know, the the size of the eyes versus whatever, like there's, there's a lot of these traits. And in any one of these traits, there's a lot of defectors, Nevertheless, if you look at a whole face together, it's 99 point something percent. You can almost always tell male or female. Um, So there's these clusters of traits that appear together. And on any one of these individual things, like you might not like, you know, hunting, your wife might like hunting. That doesn't make her necessarily masculine and you feminine. Um, But if you take collections of your traits together, I would bet that she's more feminine and you are more masculine. Right. So, um so yep. I, that's that's how I think of these traits, but I think you're right to. Um, well, and I think there's one yeah. step more. I mean, so so the way that I um, describe this in, in the book and in that law review article is that there's kind of the essential differences between men and women, which are about like the embodiment and reproductive capacity, right? So it's how you're organized with respect to um, sexual reproduction that determines whether you're male or female, and those are kind of like bright line, um, you know, physical, ontological, metaphysical differences, male and female. Then the second thing is that there are certain kind of, um, uh, the way you put it was like, you know, clusters of, um, of traits that are on average and for the most part, right? On average and for the most part, men are more interested in hunting than women. Women on, or on average and for the most part, um, more interested in ballet or the color pink, whatever. Um, and if you happen to be a man that likes pink or a woman who likes hunting, that doesn't mean you're transgender and it's totally fine. These things are bell curve distribution patterns, blah, blah, blah. And therefore it's also going to, you know, make sense that, you know, the boy scouts might be the one that have an annual hunting trip and the girl scouts have an annual um, trip to the ballet. Um, and, you know, the reason why is that, you know, it might be 19 out of 20 of the boy scouts really want to go hunting and 19 out of the 20 girl scouts really want to go to the ballet And you as the parent of the one child that would prefer the other might have to schedule, you know, a special daddy daughter hunting trip or, you know, mother son ballet trip, whatever. Right. And then the last thing I'll say is that there are so it strikes me are um, 
not just descriptive differences, like what we're describing here are law of averages, who has what sorts of interests or inclinations, or even like, you know, you're talking about like the facial um, structure of men and women, which uh, has variations. Um, but then there also strike me as ways in which we should actually, um, uh, this is where like, uh, you, you could have gender norms, right? The idea that there's something normative um, that we should take away from our embodiment as male and female in how we live, right? And how we act, how we raise um, our children um, to help that boy grow up to be a man, help that girl grow up to be a woman. And I think those largely center around uh, marriage and family life. Um, and, you know, it largely centers around um, what's it going to look like um, when one of you is specializing at labor inside of the house and one of you is specializing in labor outside of the house during the early years of childbearing and rearing and nursing, um, because there are certain things I can't do that only my wife can do. And those things have normative implications um, for how we're going to specialize the use of our time for this stage of our marriage. Um, so anyway, um, well, those are the three buckets I kind of think in on the on the kind of like sex differences topic. Yeah, I, I I think you're touching on people's actual fear and why there's so much resistance to the biological realities here. Um, I think people are terrified about something that's actually true, that in fact, the biology is important and that it does and ought to dictate something about how we organize our lives and consequently how we organize society, that it does have implications. Um, and, and that's, I, I think that's why people are so terrified to look at even the science on, on sex differences. And I, I do think that that is very much um, for, so for example, I agree that transgenderism is very much the, the child actually of, of feminism more than of, of gay marriage in a certain sense. Right. Um, very much so. That, it, it, because this denial of, of sex differences is involved. Now you could say like, uh, is there a denial of sex differences roles in a marriage if you have two men or two women? But I, I think people understand intuitively, even if they won't say that like, there must be something actually different about same sex relationships, right? Like that there must be something that functions differently in that kind of uh, relationship or marriage than for example, between me and my husband, like just by necessity, because there are sex differences. Yep, um, yep. And I think, you know, if you get most, certainly most of my gay friends agree with that. Um, but, but I think even more left-wing sort of uh, gay folks, if you get, get a few drinks in them, they will admit that their relationships function differently because men and women are different. So it's going to be different when there's well, and part of the reason. Men, it's, yeah. It's it's what makes them gay. I mean, it, it's, yeah, I'm right. only attractive to people of the same sex or of the opposite sex or both. And the idea being that like the bodily differences make a difference for my sexual attraction. But then you would also think that a, um, a double male relationship, a double female relationship and a male female relationship are going to function differently. If you think that men and women are different. And this is what the social science says. So whenever I, you know, talk to my friends who are like kind of like the number cruncher bean counters, they're like, yeah, like lesbian relationships, gay relationships, and then male, male, female relationship look different, not because of homosexuality per se, but because a double female relationship accentuates stereotypically or character characteristically is the better term here, characteristically female attitudes about relationship. The double male relationship accentuates characteristically male attitudes and behavior. And 
Uh, and then the male, female, the, there's a certain uh, compliment there. Um, and I think anyone um, who's either honest or you've gotten a few drinks in them, as you say, is going to recognize that. I will say when, when the um, when the UT Austin Journal article, as it was going to press, the law students there tried to cancel the editors of the journal. They tried to get the dean to shut it down um, because they said it was my article. And then one other piece in that issue were hate speech, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it came out like right as COVID was starting. And so they got like a couple weeks of agitation or maybe this was a year before COVID. I'm trying to remember, but it was, um, it was a kerfuffle, a kerfuffle down at, um, at Austin. And precisely for the reasons I think you're, you're suggesting people are afraid of, of acknowledging that our biology is not just um, an empty costume, but it actually has normative implications. Yeah, speaking of, of our biology not being an empty costume, um, you have this really uh, interesting essay uh, that you, you wrote a few months back about how the idea of the body as a costume um, or as somehow very separate from, quote unquote, who we are, hmm. it runs through a lot of these issues, right? The differences between men and women, it runs through our debate over euthanasia, which is going into overdrive with some of these horrifying articles about the MAID program in Canada, um, which is now permitting mentally ill people to, to just select suicide. Um, you know, it runs through the abortion debate about whether you can separate uh, you can separate the biology from personhood. Right. Um, so w- what is it about our modern age that we are so attached to this kind of, um, you know, we, we are like a, a pilot in a meat suit kind of thing that yeah, the, yeah. the essence of who we are is somehow completely disembodied. And, you know, why, why have we grabbed on so hard to that idea in this age? Cause you know, it's, it, there's like always different from the Christian perspective. Anyway, there's like different heresies of each age, right. And we've like <laughs> yeah, cycled yeah. back into this one. And I'm wondering why this one has such a, a tight hold or why you think it has such a tight hold on the way we think today. Yeah. I mean, so, so the best um, uh, books that have been written on this are by Carl Truman. Um, he's an intellectual historian. Um, he's a fellow um, with me at the ethics and book policy center. And then he's also a professor at Grove city college. And Carl wrote a big book about two, two and a half years ago titled the rise and triumph of the modern self. And then I encouraged him to write a shorter book that was, you know, kind of a, a, a summary of that. And it's titled Strange New World. Uh, and what Carl more or less does in both books is give you like a 400 year history um, of how the person became a self, how the self became um, politicized, and then how politics got sexualized. Uh, and what he had set out to do was, you know, he said, none of my grandparents would have ever thought it was plausible that um, Caitlin could be a woman trapped in a man's body who previously was known as Bruce, right? They all, you know, from Carl's point, all of his grandparents would have thought, what are you talking about? And yet now an entire generation of college students thinks that's like a civil right. That's a human's right. That's his truth and or her truth. And who are you to um, deny it? And so he tells that, um, that history. And, And there are, you know, there are a variety of steps. It's much more complicated than just saying it's John Locke's fault, right? I mean, and Locke plays, um, uh, uh, a part in that story. I mean, Lockean dualism is very much um, a part of this. But I think it has to do with how we've um, uh, questioned, um, kind of uh, uh, taken for granted truths that the Enlightenment, and then I, to my mind, more so the scientific revolution, 
really opened up new questions. And then also the way that technology um, uh, uh, intersects all these things. Um, in a culture that doesn't have synthetic testosterone, synthetic estrogen, puberty blocking drugs, a culture that doesn't have um, uh, uh, surgeries to create so-called neo-vaginas, et cetera, et cetera, much less likely to think that Bruce could become Caitlin. Um, and, and so, you know, I think we can't overstate the role that technology plays. Um, another thought on this, uh, the, um, you know, three of the major issues, I, I guess there are four major issues I've written books on marriage, um, gender ideology, religious liberty, and abortion. And so like three of the substantive things, the marriage, the religious, uh, the, the, the gender identity, and then abortion coupled with, um, the paper that I was most proud of that I wrote, I was a, at heritage for a decade. And the, the, the backgrounder that I wrote that I actually thought was like the best thing I had done, um, was a, a paper on assisted suicide, um, back in like 2014 or so back when the city of, um, the district of Columbia was uh, voting to, to allow it. Um, I think you're exactly right in saying that all of those issues, um, killing the unborn child and killing grandma, um, thinking that the so-called plumbing doesn't matter when it comes to um, marriage, and then thinking that like our embodiment doesn't matter when it comes to our gender identity, right? The idea that sex and gender identity are separate. They all presuppose an understanding of the person as essentially a disembodied self, um, that the person is the higher consciousness, the person is the rationality, um, the person is like the interiority. And therefore, the unborn baby does not yet have that. Um, grandma no longer has that. If the real me is the consciousness, the interiority, well, then my body is a costume. And so if the real me is a female... I can have the surgery to have a neo-vagina and then transform my body to align with my beliefs. And then if the real me is the inner feeling, well, then love makes a marriage, right? Bodily union isn't essential to what marriage is. Emotional union is. And then the body is just being used as an instrument of um, generating pleasurable um, feelings, right? Um I see that as what's underlying so many of our deepest kind of um, cultural uh, disagreements right now. And so a lot of it really has to do with like a philosophical understanding of the human person. Um, are we rational animals? Uh, Alistair McIntyre, like maybe 30 years ago, published a great short book, very difficult book uh, titled Dependent Rational Animals. Um, and I just think all three of those words are essential for like a sound understanding of the human person. Um, and, you know, various people deny some people want to overemphasize independence um, and they downplay our dependency. Uh, to my mind, we shouldn't be dependent on government. We should be dependent on family, on community, on civil society, on church. And yes, we are even dependent on good laws, but, you know, not the type of dependency that the left wants to promote on on the state. Uh, we're rational, meaning that we can actually know truths. Right. So much of modern culture is emotivist. Right. It's all just subjectivism and emotivism. Uh, well, no, I mean, the, the key part of being a rational animal is we can know true and false. We can know good and bad. We can actually reason about this. And then lastly, we're, we're animals. Uh, we're embodied creatures. The body makes a difference. Um, I think you could, you know, um, spend an entire career uh, inside of a think tank or inside of a university 
just trying to defend that 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 cluster of terms, dependent rational animals, as applied to a whole host of areas of public policy. It you know it does make intuitive. There is some like intuitive sense to this sort of pilot. You know, I do have that like sort of intuitive sense that my interior life, my um, when I'm thinking that it's somehow like separate from. I know that there's like synapses going in my brain, um, but it does have some sort of sense of of uh, being apart from the body. And but it seems to me that using that as like um, it's it's made people very unhappy. Right, the self-defining human has turned out to be incredibly unhappy and unsure about what the self is without any of those sort of guideposts, whether, whether if your body can be wrong, if, if there's no objective truth, there's no, um, you know, set of moral laws handed down from a a creator. It, it seems like that search, um, has, has now like sort of jumped the faculty lounge and the, the sort of grad student conversation and is now a very pragmatic and rubber meets the road sort of political problem, not just in America, but in the West. We do have this sort of despair of searching for who we are, what we yeah. are, um, that, that is now like having some very real sort of, um, you know, not gauzy philosophical consequences. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, so so another uh, great book to recommend to, to our, our listeners, um, it's by Ben and Jenna Story. And I wish they were EPPC fellows, but they're AEI fellows. Um, and they wrote a book maybe a year, year and a half ago titled Why We Are Restless. Um, and part of the story they tell is that, look, it's each and every one of us has to be a self-made man, not in the kind of, you know, how you use that phrase kind of uh, historically of a self-made man, someone who, you know, made an, um, a, a living for themselves or, you know, made, did well in the economy. But like, we actually have to not only um, navigate the world, but we have to decide for ourselves, what are the values? What are the truths? And I'm using scare quotes here um, that we're going to create, right? Rather than like, we're going to discern existing rules of the road we're going to discern existing guardrails and then our challenge is to navigate within those confines here it's well wait the world is entirely silly putty and we now have the obligation of deciding for ourselves you know what are the values that we want to live by right we have to create those values and then live them out and that's actually much more um challenging than it sounds right so so it's actually it's not as liberating as i think the people who thought that they were going to be liberating the human person liberating the human spirit it actually for many students it's very um uh almost i'm I'm struggling for the right way of of putting it but there's an existential um dread or fear or anxiety that i'm not up to the task right it's you know i i don't i don't know um, and having to create all of this stuff for myself is actually really, really hard. Um, and I think that drives, I mean, the, the, the mental health problems right now on college campuses are through the roof. And I think part of it is the choose your own adventure understanding of what becoming an adult entails. Uh, and many people experiencing that not as liberating, um, but as very constricting. Um, um. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you before I let you go. Um, 
you know, so many of these concepts that we've been talking about really do have a direct link in theology. And I don't mean in sort of a like sort of cheap way, like, oh, your your argument you're just saying because the Bible says, you know, um, but in a deeper way where it, it really it does come down to theological questions of, of what kind of beings we are, right? Um so Nate Hawkman, um, another guest on here, uh had an essay in the New York Times about how even the right is secularizing now. So we have uh, rapid secularization happening um, in America, actually slower than in many European countries, for example, um, which, by the way, has always been my has always been my rejoinder to our integralist friends has always been like pointing at the Catholic countries in Europe and saying they haven't done any better. No. Um, in some places, like, their collapse was much quicker. I mean, this is like Ross Douthat's made the point of like, well, you look at Ireland and you look at um, Quebec and once the kind of like um, uh, state propping up the church fell apart, like it was like almost a, an utter collapse. And then anyway, but then, then there's a, there's a response to that as well. I mean, so it's like the debate goes on. Um, <laughs> um, right. But uh, so, so in America, perhaps slower than in some countries, but um, now, nevertheless, seems to be hitting American earnest, this kind of secularization. We have the rise of the nuns, the N-O-N-E, not the N-U-N-E-S, right? Or, sorry, N-U-N-S, right? Um, you have increasing numbers of people, even on the right. And, and Timothy Carney um, yeah. kind of called this this early back in 2015, pointing to the fact that the new Republican voters, those who are coming in because they were interested in Donald Trump and what he was saying, were actually much more likely to be unchurched than sure. traditional Republican voters, right? Um, so where where is the right going and where, what is the future for a lot of these arguments that you are making um, in in a society at e where even the right... Um, yeah. Is is not sort of uh, does does not subscribe to the same set of, of uh, theological priors. Yeah, um, I mean, great question. Um, we could spend like the entire we could have spent the entire podcast on this. Um, Tim's book, Alienated America, is is excellent. Um, you know, it's where he makes the observation that you just um, uh, rehearsed, um, and. Um, and what he pointed out was that, look, as people are alienated from family, community, civil society, and church, they turn to um, a more um, strongman vision of politics. Like, they want a protector for them. Um, and um, it's, it's, you know, it's Ross Douthat's phrase, if you don't like the religious right, just wait for the post-religious um, right. That, you know, Christianity actually had a moderating or tempering, a tempering force on uh, conservatism. Um, you had opened your question by saying that, you know, these things are theological or religious. And, you know, my thought is yes and no. Um, you know, it was just this morning I was rereading an essay by C.S. Lewis where he makes the argument, well, actually, no, like there's not a distinctive Christian morality. Um, that if you think about like the nature of Christianity, um, you know, repent and believe the gospel, um, uh, uh, um, you know, seek forgiveness, you know, it's all predicated that there is a moral law that already exists that you have a certain um, awareness of to a certain extent that, you know, you need to repent and seek forgiveness, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and what he's making there is uh, simply saying that um, it's built into creation for, from the religious believers perspective um, 
that it's not as if um, God's act of creation and then, you know, God at Mount Sinai giving the Ten Commandments, that these things aren't in harmony with each other, right? Given the type of creatures we are, the type of moral laws um, um, that have been um, promulgated, um, they fit together. Um, Which means that insofar as you have people who reject that, it's not that there's like an alternative set of moral values that we're now going to discover are true or good or beautiful. It's just that it's going to be harder to embrace um, the natural law when you've rejected the natural law giver. Uh, And it's going to be harder to embrace um, the natural law when you don't have the religious institutions that were the historic um, vehicles for embodying and promulgating and cultivating a way of life um, in accordance with the natural law, right? Um, and that's to say nothing of like the supernatural purpose of of Christianity, right? Which is ultimately holiness and friendship with God. So even on just like the purely kind of natural level of like, you know, what are the virtues? What are the moral norms that should govern life? Um, it's a yes and a no in the sense that like um, the moral content there uh, is actually reflective of our natures, but it seems that we're going to have problems both knowing it and living it out um, as we secularize. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing all around us right now. Um, That um, the, um, it happens first in Europe. Now it's happening in America um, that as these historically um, Christian nations secularize truths that were um, apparently self-evident, right? Truths that we could declare to be self-evident become a lot less self-evident. Uh, moral norms that we thought were common to Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, and the reasonable atheist all of a sudden are very contested. Um, and I don't see any way, uh, any shortcut, right? I just think that is the situation that we're in. Um, it's going to mean that we need to rejuvenate our religious communities, right? And so you know, some of the work that we do, EPPC is unique in that, like, we're not just a state focused or, you know, government focused think tank. We actually have programs that are focused at religious communities. Like we actually are we're a think tank that exists to help the churches, uh, to help priests, pastors, bishops, et cetera, et cetera, do a better job at their job. And we focus on um, uh, the state, on the, on the government. Um, and I just think, you know, we're going to need to have um, renewal of the religious communities and then simultaneously willing to make um, uh, um, alliances, right? Politics might make for strange bedfellows and, you know, people who don't agree with me on everything I can work with on some things. And so, you know, people who vehemently disagree with me on both abortion and marriage are joining arms to combat gender ideology. Um, You know, you guys are doing that at IWF where you have people who have a variety of views on abortion and on same-sex marriage who understand that like what it is to be a woman, um, you know, shouldn't be up to like self-declaration. But the fact that we even have to have that discussion shows you how bad we are, right? I mean, like it's not a sign of health that we can have these partnerships across um, uh, various divisions because a generation ago, we wouldn't even need to have the discussion. It would have been unthinkable um, that Bruce could be Caitlin. Yeah, that that reminds me of of also all the the religious um, or interreligious partnerships that have sprung up. Some other strange bedfellows, you know. You guys all used to to kill each other over these theological differences, and now uh, you're all on the same team. So 
Uh, yeah, no, it was re- referred to as the ecumenism of the trenches. Um, you know, and, and, and for, for a lot of this, it happens right after Roe v. Wade. So this is a way in which you could see the law shaping the culture, shaping religious communities. Here, a bad Supreme Court decision got a bunch of like Baptists and Catholics to realize um, that not only did they agree on like the underlying, you know, moral and constitutional question of Roe v. Wade and of abortion, but also that while they had serious disagreements about the papacy and about Mary and things like that, they also had a lot of core agreements about, you know, Christology and Trinitarian theology, blah, 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 blah. Right. And so it's, um, yeah, um, it's a mixed bag. I mean, I think there have been good, serious theological good that has come out of that ecumenism of the trenches, uh, both for how it's, you know, ultimately led to the Dobbs decision and overturning Roe and how it's led to, you know, some of my best friends are uh, evangelicals and perhaps um, two generations ago, um, you know, those sorts of friendships wouldn't have been as possible. Um, but it's also a sign of, um, of cultural weakness um, that those sorts of, uh, um, uh, of alliances are necessary, right? So it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. As, as with all things, and I, I'm going to ask you one last question. Um, how, how are you, what are you, since we are recording this, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, uh, Thursday is Thanksgiving. Uh, what, what are you and your family thankful for this, this Thanksgiving season? Oh, so, so now, I mean, we literally could have spent the whole podcast on this. I mean, we, we have a lot uh, to be thankful for. Um, we're very blessed. I, I would just say at the very top of the list are, are our children. Um, Anna and I have three children, um, a nine month old, a two and a half year old, and then like a four and a quarter year old. And they're just wonderful. They all have like, they're all at each different ages where their personalities are so unique. Um, and they come through, even the nine month old is really, you know, just blossoming into like his own little, uh, person. Uh, the two and a half year old is like the spunkiest little girl in the world. Um, and it's just wonderful. Uh, and so I would, I would, um, start the list with, with our kids. Um, and then I would quickly move to the animals that we're going to slaughter, um, later, either this week or, or next and get to enjoy. Um, yes. Right. Ryan is homesteading out on the farm. He's, uh, left <laughs> DC, the, the soft confines of, of, uh, what is it? Soft handed, uh, uh, intellectual life. I have calluses on both of my hands. Is, yeah. is, uh, has moved out uh, to a farm. So, um, well, happy Thanksgiving, Ryan. Thank you so much thank for coming you. on. Thank High you. noon. Yeah, no, this was a lot of fun. We should do it again. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. We also have other productions like uh, At the Bar, which is something my colleague Jennifer Paceris and I do every so often on uh, issues that center around the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Uh, we also have uh, Beverly Hallberg, the great Beverly Hallberg hosting She Thinks, which is another one of our podcasts. Please do check those out. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.